You're listening to the Diplomats podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda from New York City. And this is Prashant Parmaswaran, your co-host from Washington, D.C. How are you doing, Ankit? Good, Prashant. Good to be back with you. Yeah, yeah likewise. Um, and so today, uh, instead of focusing on our usual single topic uh, podcast, we're going to do a naval roundup of sorts, uh, focusing on a series of significant regional developments we've been seeing in the maritime space. Um, we'll set start with the malware exercises. We've also discussed previously as a separate topic on this podcast. And then we'll zero in on some developments in the India-Japan defense relationship. And then that interesting case of the Chinese Navy ship observing a U.S.-Australia military exercise and what all that means. So as usual, a lot to discuss there. Absolutely. I like these uh um, I like these roundup podcasts. It's fun to jump around with you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's start with uh, the Malabar exercises. Um, you know, these began as a U.S.-India bilateral exercise back in 1992, but you know, you and I have written about this extensively. So we, we've seen uh, Japan join as a permanent member, and Australia is set to do so in the foreseeable future, though it's not yet one. Um, this year has been a particularly interesting setting for the exercises, uh, which were held early in July. Um, they've come amid tensions between China and India on various issues, and the Chinese Navy has also been increasing its own presence uh, in the Indian Ocean, which presents challenges for, for India. Um, so the, given that the latest exercises have concluded, um, and we've seen several firsts uh, with this iteration of the exercises, including the use of carriers or carrier-like ships in the case of Japan. Um, so Ankit, you know, what do you think are the broader takeaways here um, for our listeners from the Malabar exercises, given this sort of wider geopolitical context? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, we can go back to Malabar 2007 and kind of use that as a foil. I kind of like mm -hmm. it because it's, you know, the 10-year anniversary of Malabar 2007 this year. And a lot of people who study Asia Pacific, uh, you know, Asia Pacific um, maritime issues and geopolitics recall that exercise because it was, it remains actually the largest Malabar exercise. This year was the largest for the Indian Navy, I believe. But that year, um, mm -hmm. you know, we saw um, more than more than just three countries um, bring their navies to the uh, to the Indian Ocean for a massive exercise that really you know caused concern in China. And that was the same year that Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, during his first term in office, had floated the idea of a quadrilateral initiative between Canberra, Tokyo, New Delhi, and Washington. Um, and we and we do see shadows of that initiative returning, um, especially after um, after the Trump administration has come into office, leaving uh, these like-minded Asian uh, Asia Pacific democracies looking at each other as potentially the three pegs of a uh, of the regional security architecture as China continues to rise. So uh, you know the, the geopolitical context in 2017 is obviously very different. A big part of the reason why the quadrilateral initiative and the momentum that was demonstrated in Malabar 2007 didn't stick at the time was because you know that was still Hu Jintao's rising China, right? Uh, it was uh, you know that was still when the narrative of the peaceful rise was um, a really big part of how uh, China sought to portray itself. And obviously, if we look at recent events in uh, Maritime Asia and the East China 
Sea, the South China Sea, the Indian Ocean, and even the Western Pacific, um, starting uh, last year, especially when China's carrier made its first trip there. Um, you know, we see uh, a more assertive China that is willing to um, extend its wings and uh, start expeditionary operations across the region. So those elements of competition that were perceived in 2007 are now palpable in a more realistic way. And probably the best, uh, you know, crystallization of this in the, in the Indian Ocean region is that this is the first large Malabar exercise in the Indian Ocean since China um, started construction on its naval base in, in Djibouti, which uh, a lot of Indian mm-hmm. strategists are incredibly concerned with. So, you know, so that's one big takeaway on the geopolitical nature. Another is that you know this Malabar exercise focused on anti-submarine warfare as a primary component of the at-sea uh, part of this exercise. I should note that there were two parts. There was an at-sea portion running from the 14th to the 17th of July, and then uh, there were kind of at-shore um, exercises on leadership coordination um, at uh, Chennai. Um, mm-hmm. So the anti-submarine warfare focus, I think, is really interesting. Uh, you know, you saw kind of um, Indian P-8I uh, maritime surveillance aircraft flying with American counterparts. Um, obviously, India and the United States still have their communications pact to uh, to conclude. So this uh, exercise maybe served as a reminder of why that would be an improvement in the future. They signed a logistics agreement last year. So the bilateral component there continues to move ahead. So the anti-submarine uh, warfare focus, I think, suggests that, you know, they're, uh, they're looking to um, mature the... Uh, the extent of this trilateralized Malabar now. And, you know, it was unfortunate that uh, uh, Australia was uh, in in some ways unable to participate here. The reasons for that uh, continue to be a subject of debate. Uh, You know, there are kind of broader concerns about whether India actually sought sought, uh, to placate China to an extent by not inviting Australia to avoid a repeat of the Malabar 2007 optics, but I don't really find that that convincing. I mean, especially once, you know, we, we saw this standoff that we discussed on a recent podcast in the Himalayas. I mean, one could imagine that India would have actually liked to have, um, you know, HMAS Canberra, the helicopter dock ship right there with the U.S. Nimitz class supercarrier, uh, the Indian aircraft carrier, and Japan's Izumo helicopter destroyer right there in the Indian Ocean to send uh, to send a signal. But unfortunately, you know, we didn't see that happen. So uh, yeah, I mean, those are like some of my top line takeaways on Malabar. I don't know. I mean, what are um, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I I, I broadly agree with those. I, I think the the headlines in the Indian media outlets this year have been largely focused on the Sino-Indian tensions and how this plays into that. Um, you know, unsurprisingly, Indian officials have denied that this has anything to do with some targeting of China. Um, but I think, you know, the nature of the exercises and the broader alignment between uh, these three and increasingly four countries, you know, it speaks for itself. I mean, it's not tied to a particular event or a series of events. Um, it speaks to growing nervousness about uh, China's rise that we've seen under Xi Jinping. And I think it also speaks to India's uh, willingness to increasingly, albeit you know, still slowly, assert itself in the maritime space as it sees you know the Chinese challenges in its in its own neighborhood increasingly. Um, so that's sort of the the broad frame on on Malabar. I think it'd really be interesting to see when we actually do get uh, Australian permanent participation um, in Malabar, and I think that's something that you know you and I will continue to monitor into 2018 and, and 2019. Um, you know, I'm glad you mentioned uh, the, the so-called quad. I think that's something that um, you know all of us have been looking at to see if we'll see sort of a formal resurrection of this alignment. Um, but you know, increasingly, you you do see um, 
Indian, U.S., and Japanese officials talking about an essential effective quad, right? Even though they're not going to be sort of announcing this as, as some formal restarting of the initiative, this is something that, um, you know, speaks for itself again in terms of the wider cooperation that, that's evident there. But we'll sort of have to see how this progresses um, as the years go by. Right. Um, so let's move on to talk about India-Japan defense cooperation specifically. Um, we've recently seen some developments in terms of Japan's potential involvement in, in this sort of multi-billion dollar project to build Indian submarines. It's something you and I have been watching closely for years, but last week reports surfaced in the Indian media that, as was speculated before, uh, the Indian Navy request for information for the contract has indeed gone to the Japanese companies Mitsubishi and Kawasaki, in addition to the several other um, European states uh, as well. Now, you know, we've, we've gotten excited about Japan's involvement in such deals before. Um, the other case was, you know, the, Tokyo's lost bid to build submarines in Australia. Um, in this case, though, when Japan does win this bid, if it does, I mean, it would be a pretty big boost for strategic alignment between those two countries and Japan does have a few things going for it um, but also at the same time in these deals they may come down to sort of other factors like price compatibility etc so you know given this new development Ankit you know what do you think about uh, the potential for this bid in terms of Japan winning it uh, further down the line yeah I thought this was really interesting um, so you know I mean this is the Indian project 75i initiative uh, for six advanced diesel electric attack submarines with air independent propulsion technology um, included so there are a few competitors there's uh, six uh, you know main consortium from uh, six well I guess seven countries really participating so uh, there's um, you know a German competitor a French competitor a Spanish competitor Sweden Saab is competing and then there's a Russian and Italian joint bid and then the uh, kind of the sixth competitor that was um, speculated, I guess, as early as 2015, is uh, Japan's Mitsubishi Kawasaki Consortium who'd be offering their um, Soryu submarine. Um, so I guess the first thing to say here is that uh, on the strategic level, yes, there is a clear logic to this. India and Japan have been converging uh, in their relationship since 2000. They declared a special um, a strategic global partnership in 2006, upgraded to a special strategic global partnership later. They have close defense ties, um, obviously extends far beyond Malabar. Um, India is likely to be the first successful conclusion of a major defense deal for Japan with the U.S. to um, surveillance aircraft, although I've been watching that for well over, I guess, you know, six years now, and uh, it's kind of been strung along. So the Japanese, I think, have a sour taste in their mouth now with the negotiations over price dragging out for so long. Um, as, uh, you know, I think they're learning what a lot of other foreign arms um, manufacturers have when it comes to negotiating with India. Um, so yep. that, I guess, is, you know, one of the issues that I kind of came back to um, with with this kind of RFI that's gone to the Mitsubishi Kawasaki Consortium. Um, so, you know, from a strategic perspective, it makes a lot of sense for them to participate. Um, from a technical perspective, it makes a lot of sense for them to participate. The Soryu is an impressive submarine. It certainly would meet the requirements for the Project 75i initiative in, in most ways. I mean, um, you know, we, we talked quite a bit about the Soryu in detail um, on that podcast we did with our colleague uh, Franz Stefan when we uh, talked about the Collins class replacement project in Australia, which uh, um, ultimately went to France's um, short fin barracuda offering uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, one of the problems with the Soryu I see 
with this bid is that uh, it's a much larger submarine than the other offerings, which are all sub-2,000 tons uh, with a submerged displacement. Uh, the Soryu comes in at about 4,200 tons. That's a really big difference. Um, so that, first you know, first of all, to me, it seems like it sets the Soryu apart from the rest of the stack. Uh, but the other problem is that, you know, um, India's uh, naval procurement uh, for submarines is already pretty diversified. They already operate, you know, German submarines, and they already operate um, Russian Kilo-class submarines. And um, and French submarines, the Scorpion class, the German Type 209, and and the Russian Kilo class. And adding a Japanese Soryu to that is just really, I mean, when it comes to logistics, maintenance, that's just really, uh, you know, not a place you want to be. Uh, so the Indian Navy ultimately might end up, you know, having second thoughts about this. So it remains to be seen if this is kind of a strategic bone to throw Japan as kind of broader defense ties have gotten bogged down in this US-2 thing. It is a it is a significant contract, you know, at $8 billion. Um, but, you know, I mean, I, I have to say, um, I was a little surprised that the RFI ended up going out formally to Mitsubishi and Kawasaki, and I'd even be more surprised if they, if they come close to actually clinching this deal. I mean, obviously, we can see the logic from a diplomatic and strategic and geopolitical perspective, but at the end of the day, I mean, you know, the, the, the capabilities have to match up with what the Indians are looking for. For, and most importantly, the price has to be right. Uh, it remains to be seen if Mitsubishi and Kawasaki could offer India something. But, you know, I mean, Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe is scheduled to meet Modi later this year in uh, in September. And uh, they are um, maritime issues will be on the agenda. They're supposed to conclude a an important maritime pact. So one of the kind of curveball outcomes from that meeting could be something on, uh, on technology transfer, which is, again, going to be part of this uh, 75i initiative um, under Narendra Modi's Make in India um, initiative. They'll look to um, build these submarines with a strategic partner based in India. So Abe could, um, you know, help grease the path for Mitsubishi and Kawasaki during that meeting. But again, I haven't heard anything uh, to that effect immediately, uh, but that's something to watch for. What do you, um, what do you expect? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're, you're spot on on, on the, uh, particularly the point about um, the fact that there are a lot of um, other countries um, that have already uh, some experience in building uh, the, these submarines and have been partners with India already. Um, and Japan is a relative newcomer when it, when it comes to the, the defense market. Um, and so that puts it um, at a disadvantage in, in, in that sense. And I think you, you saw that with the Australia case as well. Um, I, I think it, it's also important, the broader point that you're making, when we talk about broader strategic alignment, as, as we often do on this podcast, we also do need to balance that with uh, the specifics of particular bids and the requirements that are inherent in this, you know, whether it's you know, price or compatibility. Um, you know, I also think you know, I'm glad you mentioned the sort of broader Japan-India defense relationship because, I mean, it, it really speaks to the broader nature of that relationship and the fact that you know we do need to balance between paying attention to the wider range of activities and an important bilateral relationship like this one um, as well as focusing on the specific areas of cooperation right because otherwise if you see a particular project fail as, as you did with uh, Japan and, and the Australia submarine bid, um, then you have individuals talking about how the relationship is in peril or defense cooperation is not working uh, properly. Um, but at the same time, I mean, you know, you, you, as you correctly pointed out, I mean, if Japan does win this bid, it would not only be surprising, but it would be a pretty significant move for, for both sides. So this is something that we'll definitely continue to watch uh, moving forward. Um, so with that, let's now move on to talk about you know Chinese naval developments uh, and this very interesting case we saw 
um, of a Chinese Navy ship surveilling the U.S.-Australia talisman saber exercise uh, that both you and I have written about. It's a regular exercise. Two cases, um, really, right? Uh, I just wanted to add the, uh, you know, we had a, a ship of the same class of the People's Liberation Army Navy just a few weeks earlier off the coast of Alaska, also monitor um, the U.S. test of the Terminal High Altitude Area Defense Missile Defense System, which China is really opposed in uh, early July. Just wanted to add that. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, you know, that that really is useful because the, the, the more general topic we're talking about here really is is a pattern of Chinese behavior that we've seen since really the, the RIMPAC exercises, right, back mm-hmm. in 2014 um, when we saw China do similar sort of surveillance activities. Um, but I think the, the, the larger question which you recently raised in a piece that you wrote for us um, was, you know, as we see China conducting more of such activities at the same time that it is protesting when the United States does similar acts in places like the South China Sea, it does offer an interesting case as to how both these powers, as well as other actors like Australia, um, are adhering to international law and aligning that with uh, their behavior. Um, and in that piece, you mentioned, you know, this this idea that Chinese Navy spy ships within the exclusive economic zones of countries may soon become a fact of life. Uh, and so that does beg the question, you know, is, is it your sense that uh, the United States, Australia, and other actors will continue to privilege this need for consistency with international law um, because of their need to prove to the Chinese that they're really adhering to the letter of the law when it comes to these things? Yeah, this is a really interesting question, Um, and it's something I'm looking forward to kind of observing. I mean, July was really fascinating because we have two incidents in such close proximity, and at the core of it is really this double standard, right, that uh, U.S. officials love to point out with China. It's kind of this idea of freedom of navigation for me, but not for thee. Um, It's the idea that, you know, we will intercept your maritime surveillance aircraft and ships within our EZ. And I should add that there was an aerial intercept just a couple of days before this podcast of an EP3 Ares in the uh, East China Sea that, again, hit home. I mean, China sending these two Type 815 auxiliary, auxiliary general intelligence ships to both the coast of Alaska and Queensland to monitor, um, you know, a missile defense test and a major U.S.-Australia exercise. But yet it is... Um, you know, precluding that right within its own um, international airspace and inclu- exclusive economic zone. Um, international airspace being right outside the twelve, um, the twelve nautical mile uh, territorial outspace uh, airspace limit. There, so it, you know, it comes down to like, are we going to see the Chinese continue to act in this way and maintain this double standard? Because that becomes especially untenable when you have the United States conducting these freedom of navigation operations, where the whole point is to assert that we have this right. Which again, you know, puts I think these governments, um, like the United. States and Australia in a position where officially they have to make the point that there is nothing wrong with what China is doing. They can't be seen complaining. They can't even be seen expressing concern about the Chinese activity, right? Because a big part of the Chinese rhetoric comes down to this idea of military vessels in the exclusive economic zone being inherently threatening. And international law, the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, you know, allows for these kinds of activities, military surveillance within the EEZ. So what was interesting, I thought, in a lot of these Australian articles that were covering this incident, and there was a lot of debate and conversation, there have been a few really good articles at the Lowy Interpreter, actually, on this, um, that have really had a thoughtful take on uh, what this means. And the broader question is, you know, 
off the record, you'll read these articles in Australia and you'll see, you know, kind of defense sources, quote unquote, saying, you know, we found this to be provocative and worrying. We don't want the People's Liberation Army spying on our military activities and our um, regular exercises with the United States. But at the same time, you know, that kind of hints at how China sees a lot of this. And it comes back to this question of, you know, where will things really shake out when it comes to this kind of clash over norms and freedom of navigation. Uh, certainly in the South China Sea, China has been uncompromising in its opposition to any kind of activity. So I don't know if I see this as kind of China opening the door and saying, hey, we're going to start um, you know, accepting your definition of uh, you know, freedom of navigation and surveillance in the EEZ, but it's more that I think China will um, look to you know, keep this double standard working. And something that you sh- uh, you know, I should probably point out again is that China did send these vessels entirely unescorted. And I think its official explanation for what these vessels were doing is oceanographic research, uh, not any kind of military surveillance. So I think they can still kind of get away with, uh, at least on paper, at least their spokespeople can get away with claiming that there isn't a real double a double standard at work here. But, you know, I mean, if you're sitting 100 miles offshore right next to a terminal high-altitude area defense system and China's been especially vocal complaining about the system, I think it's pretty obvious what's going on. Um, so those are, you know, just a few thoughts. And I, I talk about it a little bit more in that article. But um, I don't know. I mean, what is your uh, what's your kind of bottom line take on this? Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, that really is the question, right, whether um, the U.S., Australia and some of these other um, actors will continue to, to adhere to this need for consistency. If we not only see the Chinese continue to adhere to this double standard, but also, you know, what happens if the Chinese more assertively protest actions that these countries are carrying out against it, right? I mean, you've recently seen when the United States has been conducting some of its operations, increasingly the Chinese have been uh, not only expressing their displeasure, but also, you know, the, some of these U.S. vessels have come uncomfortably close to potential tensions with the Chinese, right? But at the same time, the Chinese continue more aggressively conducting some of these activities um, itself. So if we see both of those things happening, um, you know, there, there's another scenario that's far darker, right, where, um, you know, you have groups uh, within these countries like the United States and, and Australia suggesting, you know, forget consistency uh, and argue that, you know, the character of Chinese activity is profoundly different from what these countries are doing, and so it deserves to be treated as, uh, as such, right? And it, it wouldn't be the first time that we're seeing uh, these actors selectively in, implement international law, and, and you're right. I mean, if this actually happens, that would then play into the Chinese narrative that the international system and, and, and laws and regulations are rigged against it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that would sort of undermine the case that the United States and other countries are making that the Chinese need to adhere to international law in the first place. So it, it, it's kind of, you know, being stuck in a, a, between a rock and a hard place for the United States and Australia, right? Because clearly, I mean, they, they are uh, quite displeased at what the Chinese um, are doing in this regard. Um, so remains to be seen what kind of scenario and response we'll, we'll actually see. So. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, yeah so... Well, anyways, as usual, we could go on for a lot longer, but I think we'll have to leave it there, Ankit. So um, for our listeners, uh, as always, thanks for listening. And if you do have any suggestions for what you'd like us to see in future podcasts, um, do let us know. And thanks for joining me, Ankit. My pleasure, Prashant. Talk to you next time.